We'll turn to Psalm 71. That's our text this morning. And just a word about, again, this series. We're almost at the end next week. Uh, one last psalm, and then the following Sunday will be our reflection services, uh, service through the, uh, through the psalms uh, where we invite you, a congregation, uh, to stand uh, and, and testify to what is God teaching you? How is God shaping you through this series in the psalms? Um, and as I've been thinking about, um, thinking back on this series and what have been the common threads and themes, um, some of which we knew going into it, but others, you know, we just didn't know. We, these were select psalms. We asked our different uh, guys on our preaching team to, to choose psalms that they, they felt led to preach. And, uh, but one of the themes that's developed, as I'm sure you've seen, and the title, In the Shadow of the Rock, gets at, is Troubles. Troubles have been lurking in most of the psalms that we've been preaching through this summer. And alongside troubles and suffering and difficulty of living in a fallen world as fallen people um, has been this image, the central image of God being a rock or a refuge or a fortress. Just think back over most of the psalms we've been in, Psalm 16 that Jackson preached, Psalm 27 that Rob Lister preached, each had this sort of common theme that if everything else was stripped away and all I was left with with God, that would be enough. Psalm 16 declares, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And Psalm 27 talked about God as this one thing, one thing I've asked and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze on your beauty forever. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He'll conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. God is refuge. Psalm 1 that Randy preached sort of came at it preemptively is how do we prepare ourselves for when life feels like drought? Well, we sink the roots of our heart deeply into God's word. We meditate day and night on God's promises and what he, how he's revealed himself so that we know who he is and when drought comes in life, we don't wither up and die, but we continue to bear fruit because we have deep roots. Psalm 2 that Rob Price preached on gave us this grand picture of the God even though we live in a world where nations rage and kingdoms rage against God and Christ and Christ's people, that nevertheless we don't have to fear because that God laughs at the boastful arrogance of the most powerful ruler and will one day eliminate all enemies and he alone will reign. And amazingly, until that day, God's grace is such that even the worst despicable powerful tyrant can kiss the sun, can repent and turn and find refuge, the last verse of Psalm 2 says, in him. And last week, Eric Twistleman preached from Psalm 46, which begins with this declaration of a, who God is. He is a refuge and a fortress and a very present help in time of trouble. So we're not done with this theme yet. Psalm 71, we're going to approach it again from a little bit different angle and vantage point. Psalm 71 is the prayer of a saint who's in old age. He picked up on this language of an old age and gray hair and when my strength is spent. Here is the prayer of a saint late in life who's in trouble again. And we see him turn to God as refuge yet again 
and model for us what does it mean? What does it look like to find our refuge in God? What does that mean? How do I make God my refuge? So let's read it. I'm going to say a couple of things then about just the, the backdrop of it. What's going on behind this psalm? What gives rise to this psalm? And then consider how does, uh, what do we have to learn about taking refuge in God from this saint in old age? So Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked and the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I've leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I've been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life, they consult together and they say, God's forsaken him. Pursue him. Seize him. There's none to deliver him. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will continually hope and praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation all the day for their numbers past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I'll remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Oh my God, from my youth you've taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens, the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. And I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you. My soul also, which you've redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, help us here. Uh, We need faith for the long haul. We need to trust you with endurance because life does not get easier. Lord, we have seasons that feel like relief and then we have seasons that at times feel like they're more than we can bear. And God, you are strong. You are a refuge to us throughout it all. We just need to learn how to take refuge in you, Lord. Pray you'd help us to do that through the psalm in Jesus' name.
Amen. So what's this guy going through in this psalm? Look at verse 10. My enemies. So this guy has enemies, real people who want to hurt him, who, who are seeking ways to bring him down and hurt him. Verse 4 says, there are wicked men, unjust men. They're cruel. So the picture isn't that this guy's made a lot of enemies because he's sinned against a lot of people and he's in the wrong and now he's reaping the consequences. Now the picture is that he's innocent. He's been faithful to God. He stands for God among his people and there are unjust men who want to hurt him. So his enemies, uh, this is unfair treatment that he's going through. Verse 13, he calls them accusers who are seeking his hurt. So maybe not physical hands they're trying to lay, maybe they're not physically trying to hurt him, but they want to disgrace him. They want to make his name dirt. They want to bring shame upon him and the God that he stands for. So there's an element of being persecuted here by those who are not God's people. And it's serious. Look at verse 20. This isn't just a a minor thing. He puts this in the category of troubles and calamities. Calamities are earth-shaking sort of suffering, things that make you feel like your world is caving in on you. And he says, I've seen many of those, and this is one of them. And he seems to feel alone, I think, in this psalm and isolated. So there's accusations being made against him. And look at verse 7. And many have come to see him and his life as a portent. That's just a big word for a sign of God's displeasure or chastisement, a warning sign. He said, many see me as a warning sign. In other words, I picture something like this, him walking through the town and a mom or a dad pulling their kids over to the side and whispering, see that? That's what happens when God's angry with you. He says, many see my life as a portent, as a warning. In verse 10 and 11, his enemies are kicking him while he's down. They're kind of conspiring against him and saying, God has forsaken him. Let's pursue him and seize him. Because God is not vindicating this man in, in, in the accusations, they say, well, as Jan Buck put it in our grace sermon prep this week, let's get him. So that's the context here. This guy has enemies. He's being unfairly treated. This is a psalm that, that comes, is the cries of the heart of someone who's being persecuted unfairly for, the, for, for standing for God. And some of you might be able to relate to the particulars of this psalm. I was talking to someone in our grace group last week who, who said sometimes um, engaging with some psalms can be difficult because I'll read it and I'll think my life doesn't involve these particulars right now, so it's hard to enter in. So maybe that's you, but maybe for some of you, you don't have a hard time entering into this. Maybe you have or you do right now experience some measure of being mistreated unfairly because you identify yourself with Christ. I know stories here. I've had folks in my grace group over the years. One person years ago um, stood in a very simple, uh, unobtrusive way for Christ publicly at their work and were fired for it. Let go and told that was the reason. 
No teacher, one teacher came to mind this week who for years was hosting a good news club after school, elementary school, uh, on her campus. And for a couple of years, there was a teacher not happy with this, not a believer and not a fan of people teaching kids about Jesus who, who sought to make that difficult and went to the administration and tried to undermine that and even personally shun this teacher, kind of for, for a year gave the cold shoulder because she was a part of this. And I don't know if you can relate in some way to identifying yourself with Christ um, and being mistreated because of it, but if you can, man, this psalm speaks to you. It's an example of how to take refuge in circumstances like that. If you don't, um, Jesus says that if you follow me and you identify yourself with me, you will eventually. Jesus says if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. And because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if you're a Christian and you've never experienced anything like that, it's worth asking, could that be because your identification with Jesus is so private and personal, so just between me and the Lord, and your life mirrors so closely the surrounding culture that the world doesn't know you're not of it? That might not be why you can't relate to this guy right here, but it could be. I need to ask that question. But even if not, even if right now the particulars of this don't grab you, engage you, you can engage with the the, the level of trouble and calamity. And what does it mean to take refuge? And this models for us a way to run to God as refuge, whether your your trouble and calamity is what he's dealing with or, or something else. So that's the backdrop of this psalm. And one last thing, when is this happening to him? It's happening to him, verse 9, in the time of old age, he says, when his strength is spent. It's bad enough he's going through this kind of attack again, but it's hitting him when he's tired and he doesn't have the strength that he once had. And look at verse 20. It's not the first time he's been around the barn with this sort of thing. He says, Lord, you have made me see many troubles and calamities. So not only is it late in life, but it's late in a life that is familiar with these sorts of sufferings and struggles. One of the reasons I chose this psalm at the beginning of the summer was this unique vantage point it seems to have, and it's hearing from someone late in life after years and years of walking faithfully with the Lord and clinging, who's still clinging to the Lord, and I need to hear from someone like that. I turn 46 tomorrow. Jan Buck shouted out in first service, you're young! So I recognize that's not as old as I could be, but I'm sort of in midlife right now. I got gray hairs right now. Things don't recover as quickly when I exercise or work out or help someone move. And, uh, but I still, Lord willing, have years ahead of me. So when I hear someone who's well beyond me in age and in years walking with the Lord, who's clinging to God still in trust and faith, I want to listen. I need to hear a psalm like this because I want to be a, a, a man like that if the Lord gives me that many years. J.I. Packer is one of those sorts of men lives in the UK. He just turned 91 in July. And a couple of years ago, uh, he wrote a book called Finishing Our Course with Joy, Guidance from God for Engaging with Our Aging. So I think he was about 89 uh, when he wrote that book. And I read it a couple of years ago, short. And he cites Psalm 92, a couple of verses in there that say, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and they grow like a cedar in Lebanon. 
They still bear fruit in old age and they are ever full of sap and green. I want to be like that. And then here's what he says. Look at this. He says, this biblical expectation and indeed promise of ripeness growing in service of others continuing as we age with God is the substance of the last lap image of our closing years in which we finish our course. Runners in a distance race like jockeys in a horse race always try to keep something in reserve for a final sprint. And my contention is that so far as our bodily health allows, we should aim to be found running the last lap of the race of our Christian life. As we would say, flat out. The final sprint, so I urge, should be a sprint indeed. That is inspiring. However many years God gives me, I want the final lap to be a sprint. And I think Packer would say, this guy here, Psalm 71, is an example Taking refuge in God continually is how that happens. So let's look at it. What can we learn from this seasoned saint about taking refuge in God? I want to point to four things. Number one, might seem obvious, but in his trouble, he runs to God and he doesn't run to other shelters. His instinct, his impulse is to run to God right out of the gate in verse one. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. In you, verse three, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You are my rock and my fortress. So you get the idea, this has become the pattern. Continually, you are the rock I continually come to. Trouble hits, I run to you, God. But here's the thing about a shelter. You can have the strongest shelter, but if you don't run and get under it, it doesn't help you, right? That's how shelter works. So God can be a fortress and a very present help in time of trouble, but if in time of trouble I don't run to him, he does me no good. I can have great seat belts, but if I don't put one on and then I crash, I'm going to get hurt, right? So it's one thing for God to say I am a refuge, but it's another thing for me to say I will come to you and make you my refuge. And that's what he's doing. He's running first to God when trouble hits rather than something else. There's all sorts of other things that we run to as shelter. Our instinct is first to run to that when things get difficult, aren't there? doesn't just happen immediately. Over time, I think we develop the instinct to run first to God. There's all sorts of other things I think that when I'm worried or I'm anxious or afraid or in despair, I'm tempted to run there to make me feel like it's all going to be okay, to, put, to, to make me forget how hard it is or whatever. What is it for you? What is your first instinct to run to when trouble hits? Is it something that you put in your mouth, like food? Triple venti caramel frappuccino, just drown your troubles in that. Caffeinated drink, alcoholic drink, cigarettes. Is it work? Is that your first instinct? I'll run there for shelter. That's somewhere where I'm in control and I can check off my to-do list and I can get things done and accomplish things and everything's okay when I'm at work. Maybe that's not what your work is like. <laughs> but maybe you just run to work. That's my, your, your first instinct to shelter. Bury your head back in busyness. Is your first instinct to, to go shop and to buy something new. That'll make everything okay. 
that was a personal. When I was in college for a year in Minnesota, away at school, I went through a summer where I was working and my friends had all gone and of loneliness and spiritual dryness and, and kind of low-grade just depression. And I filled that gap up with shopping. And I put about $2,000 debt on a credit card in one summer, making daily trips over to the mall and thinking of some new thing that I need that would make me feel a little bit better. And at the end of the summer, I still felt terrible and I had a huge debt. And now we've got Amazon Prime, right? Talk about a very present help in time of trouble, right? I can just right there. And if it's over $40, it's there the next day. But we can run to things like shopping for shelter. We can run to entertainment for shelter, binge watching a television show where my problems don't exist in that world and I can just live in their problems right now and just enjoy their, their story. Or maybe as soon as trouble hits, your inclination is run immediately to social media and gripe about it because that's where the likes are. And that's where the, oh, poor you comments are. And that's enough. Just sympathy and affirmation is a shelter. That's not to say we shouldn't run to people when we're in trouble. If we run to people and, who will point us to God and pray with us and help, to help us take refuge in God, that's okay. But I think you know what I mean. Sometimes all we want is just the sympathy, Right? I don't want to run to God. I just want other people to just say they're there. And we just post it on there and it feels good as people just, those likes start coming in. Taking refuge in God means I run to God for refuge first. That's what this psalmist does. So then what does he do? What does running to God involve? Well, the first thing, so this is point number two, but the first thing he does unashamedly is he says, help. He just cries out to God for help verbally. He talks to God and says, God, would you deliver me from this suffering and pain? Verse one, don't let me be put to shame. Verse two, deliver me, rescue me, save me. Verse four, rescue me. Maybe it goes without saying for you that we have permission to ask God to relieve our trouble. But maybe not. Yes, God has purposes in trial, the Bible says. God brings trouble and calamity. Like this, uh, this psalmist says, you have made me see many troubles and calamities, God. And so maybe you, you know that. And you know God builds character in troubles and trials. And he strengthens my faith through trials. And he reveals idols through trials. And he helps make me more like Jesus through trials. All true. But... Maybe if, if that leads you to feel guilty, asking God, would you deliver me from this? Would you make this stop? If you're reluctant to, because you feel like, well, I can't ask God that, that would be lacking trust in his sovereign good plan. So I just need to shut up and take it. That's not what this psalmist is doing, is it? He unashamedly earnestly cries out, God, would you change this? Verse 13, my paraphrase, would you turn the tables right now? I am the the recipient of scorn and disgrace. God, would you turn that on my enemies and cover them with that disgrace? And he doesn't even say in your timing. Look at verse 12. Oh my God, make haste to help me. He asks God to hurry. It's because God wants to develop in us an instinct of dependence 
and reliance. God wants us to move from a a self-reliant, independent, I've got this attitude and perspective to a, I need help every day. Sort of the irony, right? With with our children, a mark of maturity is independence, right? Kids can dress themselves now. They can brush their own teeth and then they get older, they can drive a car and then they can get their own job and they can provide for themselves and one day they can buy a house for themselves and independence can be a, a mark of maturity of growing up. But when it comes to our relationship with God and spiritually speaking, independence is actually a sign of immaturity in the Bible, isn't it? An attitude of I don't need God is a sign of immaturity. And here's this guy here late in life and he knows, no, I'm not independent. I need God. And dependence is a mark of maturity. And trials bring that about. And the first expression of dependence is to say, God, help, which is what he does. So he runs to God. He cries for help. He says, God, deliver me from this. I look to you. Number three, he also brings his grief to God. He doesn't just ask for help, but he runs into the shelter with his complaint and his grumbling, and he lays it out before God. He's honest with God, and he lays out his grief. Look at verses 9 through 12. And read between the lines. When he says, God, don't cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. What is he saying? God, I feel like you're casting me off in my old age. (laughs) My strength is spent and I feel like you're abandoning me and bailing on me now. He says, my enemies are speaking concerning me that God's forsaken him. People are believing that, God. Look at verse 12. God, be not far from me. Between the lines, God, where are you? He brings his fear. He brings his frustration He brings his feeling of this isn't fair and he brings his feeling of loneliness and abandonment to God. He doesn't just sit out here and grumble about God, but he is comfortable enough to bring his grief in with God into the shelter and talk it out with him. Are you more inclined in trouble to grumble about God or to bring it to God and have it out with him? He invites us to do the latter. Another psalm says, God invites, pour out your hearts before me. God is a refuge. That's part of what it means for God to be a refuge. He's he's one that we can bring our grief to and lay it all out and then we can deal with it. So that's what he does. He runs to God. He cries for help. He pours out his grief. And here where he spends, I think, most of the time in the psalm is he shores up his hope that God is a refuge. Shoring up is something you do uh, if you live in an old home and you realize that the weight of the roof uh, has taken its toll on the beams and the rafters like my old garage was and I wasn't so sure I would put my full weight on all those rafters and if they're beginning to sink and the beams can't hold the weight of what's pressing down on, what do you do? You add braces, right? You, you, You brace them up and you put stronger beams and you reinforce the strength lifting up. And that's essentially what he's doing in this psalm with God. And he he does it in two directions, past and future. Look at verse 19. No, I'm sorry, let me back up. Let's start in verse five. He reminisces in the past about how he has seen God be a refuge. Verse five, you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. 
from my youth. Verse six, upon you I have leaned from before my youth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. Stop for a minute there. He is looking back over his long life and he has come to realize God's hand of refuge was on him even before he was born. God was laying foundations to be his refuge before, well before he was even aware of it or could even speak a word. Have you walked with the Lord long enough to be able to look back and see ways now in hindsight that God was laying foundations to show up and be a refuge for you long before you even knew he was doing it? I can. I don't know what story pops to the top of your list, but the one for years it is, it's sort of, you know, uh, 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 top greatest hit of God showing up like that and realizing, God, you were working in this way before I ever knew. It was for Betsy and I, was with our friendship with Eric and Donna Tonis. I can't tell the whole story, but maybe some of you have heard me say, but um, when we were early married, before we were at Grace, Grace uh, a couple of years married, Betsy went to Wheaton College, had this wonderful idyllic college experience, and, and I had a commuter college experience in Southern California, nothing like that. And we were early married, and her friends who had graduated would come and visit California because it's a great place to visit. And when they would, they'd want to catch up with Betsy Collins. And so we'd go out somewhere to dinner and I'd sit for about two hours and just listen to Wheaton stories the whole time and watch the clock. And it was, so it was another one of those kind of circumstances. She said, hey, I got an email from Eric and Donna and I was an RA in their dorm and they moved out to teach at Biola here and can we go get dinner with them? And I did, so reluctantly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we went to BJ's Pizza in Brea. And I remember walking in the front door and they were already at a table and we sat down and I was just braced and ready for two hours of Wheaton stories. And Eric, very much like Eric, turned his chair toward me and he didn't want to talk about Wheaton. He wanted to know who's this guy who married Betsy Collins. And we started talking and we hit it off and that night ended about 2 a.m. back on their back patio of their house in La Mirada having be- beginning to be- become close friends. Let me fast forward now. Within a few years, we end up landing at Grace with them, serving on staff with Eric here. And Betsy and I find ourselves in one of the darker seasons of our marriage of dealing with infertility. And doctor's appointments and, and procedures and then waiting and then disappointment and then repeat. And we were in this. And the amazing thing in God's plan Eric and Donna, in their Wheaton years, had walked through for about the same amount of time, almost step for step, the same path of appointments and disappointments and trying again and disappointments. And surprise, God had dropped them into our life to help remind us of how God had been a refuge to them through that, how God would be a refuge to us through that. I remember coming to a point where we had had our last doctor's appointment and we had decided we're we're not going to try any further this way. And we were beginning to consider, has God called us to not have children? And, and, and that's, that's the reality. And they reminded us of how God had been a refuge for them and had given them a ministry in their home for many years without children, of being a spiritual mom and dad to many co- college students who lived in their home. And they helped us envision a future without children where God was a refuge and, and, and ministry was fruitful and life was full. I had no idea at that dinner at BJ's Pizza as I was grumbling about heading there, God was laying foundations to be a refuge years later. I wonder what foundations God is laying right now to be a refuge for you in troubles that haven't even shown up in your life yet. 
So this psalmist reminisces about a life of seeing God show up as refuge. And, and he continues in verse 14, shoring up his hope with Sunday school stories. Let me read what I mean. He says, I will hope continually. I'll praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation. All the day, their numbers past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I'll remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Whose deeds, whose acts, what are, what are the stories he's thinking of? Verse 17, oh God, from my youth, you've taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Praise God for Sunday school and adventure week and for youth ministry, and for moms and dads opening the Bible and Bible stories even with young children and telling their kids about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Gideon and Daniel and Jesus and Peter and Paul and John, these mighty stories of God showing his righteousness and his faithfulness and, and his power to be a refuge. And the psalmist draws on all these. They're beyond number. And he says, I'm going to take all these and armed with this evidence, I will hope continually. And notice verse 17, that word still. He says, from my youth you've taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. I think he even realizes that the fact that he has not abandoned God himself and that he is still running to God as refuge after all these years is further evidence that God is faithful and he's a refuge. If you this morning have not abandoned Christ even though life has been hard, that is evidence that God is holding you fast. So armed with all this, he hopes. And then in verse 20, he, he moves from looking back. Now he can actually envision a future in which God is a refuge again. Isn't that how it is when you're deep in trouble? You can't envision a future where you're joyful again. You can't envision a future where you're praising God and giving thanks again. You can't picture it because right now it just is so dark. But here he is armed with all this past ammo and, 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 and of how God's been a refuge. Now he can envision a future like that. Look at verse 20. All of a sudden now it turns future. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities, you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again, again, again. That's why Mo kept saying again and again and again. He can picture a future all of a sudden now in which God is rescuing him again. And not only one where God is a refuge again, but look at verse 22, where he is praising God again. He says, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I'll sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you. My soul also, which you've redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. He can almost envision it so clear that the last verse he talks about it as if it's already happened. See that? They have been put to shame and disappointed who sought my hurt. He's there mentally. In that day, God's going to make things right. On Friday, as I was wrapping up prep for the sermon, I spotted this tweet by Tim Keller that just said this sentence. Suffering is in, unbearable if you're uncertain that God is for you and with you. Read it again. Suffering's unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. And this psalm ends on this note. He says, I can see how God has always been for me and with me. 
I can begin to see how God will always be for me and with me. So right now in my present, I can hope and trust that God is for me and with me. As we finish, I want to ask, what's the pathway to Christ from this psalm? How, in light of the fact that Jesus has come now, can we read this psalm and be even more encouraged because we know more of the story? What seems clear to me is that if anyone understood trouble and calamity and suffering like this, it was Jesus, wasn't it? Just listen to what this psalm has said. Enemies, false accusers, wicked, unjust, cruel men who sought his hurt. That was Jesus. Just like the psalmist, Jesus' enemies and onlookers looked on him at the cross and concluded, God's forsaken him. No one will deliver him. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. But they were wrong. Jesus said, I haven't come to save myself. I actually came to deliver you and be a refuge to you from God. To be a place where you can find your sin covered and atoned for forever so that then God can be your refuge forever. That's why Jesus came. And God had to make him see many troubles and calamities for that to happen. He was accused unjustly and arrested unfairly and mocked and spit upon and beaten and tortured and crucified as a criminal on a cross and buried in a tomb. And he endured all of that for the joy set before him of becoming a rock of refuge for us that we could run to. If you don't understand that in the very first place that you need a refuge from God because of your sin, you need to understand that. That's why Jesus came. That's why God himself said, I will be the refuge for you from myself, my own righteous anger toward your sin, and I'll absorb it all. And the amazing thing is after Jesus did that and God vindicated him and rose him from the grave, he didn't come back to all those who sought his hurt and dropped the hammer. He sent his, his disciples back, starting with Peter, to say to them, you crucified the Lord of glory, but if you repent and you believe in his name, he will forgive your sin and he will enter your life. His Holy Spirit, he'll be a refuge for you. If you've not made God your refuge like that, I want to talk to you this morning. Please don't leave. Come find me up here. I'll talk and we'll pray. And as we finish this, I just want to encourage you, Grace, family, whatever troubles you're in right now, whatever calamities are coming down the road, we need to encourage one another to take refuge in God, to be people who run to him first and to ask him for help, that we pour out our honest complaints before him. And then we remind ourselves, we remind one another, he is faithful. We pray. God, this psalm is calling us to hold fast to you, to take refuge in you. And we need to do that, Lord. I pray that we would. And I thank you, though, also for the promise that you, by your Holy Spirit, you help hold us fast. That as we cling to you, you are actually clinging to us as well. And we can trust in that. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.